are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. We're doing good this morning? Man, it's easy to get up and preach when you're following that kind of worship, right? I love it. Hey, a few months ago, um, Pastor Rick and I were working on this sermon series uh, that we've titled Giants, and we've been in it now for six weeks. This is the sixth week. We've been in it, and, and one of the things he said, you know, Chris, I want you to preach one of these giant sermon series, uh, one of these sermons, which one of the giants do you want to take? And I remember th- saying, hey, let me think about it, let me, let me take a minute, let me pray about it, and there were two giants that I was specifically interested in. I was interested in the one on loss, because I recognize that that's a giant that Hannah and I both deal with uh, pretty heavily. And then I said, the second giant I would love to take is Temptation. And I think there was this moment in him that was like, really? You want to take the giant of temptation? I said, I do. I've been working with uh, students and college students for a number of years now, and one of the things that I recognize is this giant of temptation seems to live in their life so, it is so relative, it is so big, it is so massive in their life. And so I've been engaged in this conversation for a number of years, and I think that this conversation is important for you and I to have this morning. But here's the thing, this isn't going to be a normal conversation, and this isn't going to be a normal sermon on temptation, because oftentimes I hear pastors and preachers talk about this temptation, and talk about this sin that lives in our life, and it's always wrapped in shame and guilt. It always seems to be clothed in this idea of shame, that we need to do better, that we need to fix it, that, that this is robbing us of our life, and those are true statements. But it's been wrapped in shame and guilt for me for a, numbers of year, for a number of years. And here's the thing. This morning, I want to frame this conversation. I want to set it up from the very beginning. This might be the most important thing that you hear me say today. Is that any time we fight a giant in our life, we do not fight that giant from a place of defeat. Listen to me. Anytime we fight a giant in our life, no matter what it is, whether it be temptation, whether it be loss, whether it be fear, we fight it from a place of victory. I mean, you've got to hear that this morning. We do not fight from a place of defeat. We fight from a place of victory. Because of what Christ has done, because of what Jesus has done on the cross and what Christ has done for us, every giant we encounter, we fight from a place of victory. And I I think that that's a truth that we often miss out on. And I think the church is often missing that, that we go through life operating from a place of defeat because we can't seem to overcome the things in which we encounter. And that's not biblical. That's not who Jesus says we are. That's not what Christ has done in our life. You and I, as followers of Christ, we operate from a place of victory. Every giant we face is no match for God. Every giant we encounter has nothing on the God in which we serve. So here's how I want to start. On a sermon on temptation, I don't want to start with shame and guilt. I want to start with calling and purpose. What's your calling? What's your purpose? What is it in life that gets you up in the morning? I'm not talking about an alarm clock. I'm not talking about a job. I'm not talking about a response. I'm talking about your calling. It's way deeper than that. Your purpose. 
I don't care if you're three years old in this room or you're 110. Each one of us have a calling. Each one of us has a purpose. God has a plan for you. God is moving you. There is a version of you in which God wants you to be. He's created you for that purpose. What's yours? You see, because I think and I believe with everything in me that if our focus is on calling, our focus is on the purpose in which God has given us, our focus is on the mission that God has laid before us, guess what? Temptation, it takes a back seat. Temptation takes a back seat when your focus is on calling and on purpose. This January of this year, I uh, started my 17th um, New Year's resolution of eating healthier, right? Any fans out there of New Year's resolutions? I'm a big fan. I, I would say that I'm more of a hobbyist when it comes to that. It's kind of a hobby. It starts for a little while and tends to, tends to drown out after a bit. And January was no different for me. I, uh, same thing, you know, I'm like, all right, Hannah, you know, this is the year, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna lose these pounds. I'm gonna get the beach body I've always wanted, you know. I'm gonna, you know, rip my shirt off and be just like a Greek god, you know, at the beach this summer, right? Same song, different verse for me. We're about 21 days in and I've eaten healthy and I've lost a few pounds and I'm working out and I'm getting a little stronger. And, uh, but my, my, my friend, David Bond, anybody know David Bond? He's awesome. Love David. Got one fan, David, if you're here. <laughs> but David and Bethany, they've kind of started the same thing. They said, you know what, this year we're going to kind of do kind of a healthier eating. So they started the Whole30 diet. Now, if you don't know what the Whole30 diet is, you can basically eat meat, water, and grass, okay? <laughs> I mean, that's about it. Like, it is terrible. Like, anybody, you hate your life if you're on Whole30. I'm just saying that. You know, like, you don't know what's fun. And so David is eating meat, water, and grass for 30 days starting in January. And we're about 21 days in. And I remember this one day specifically. I'm in the office. And I had just eaten a gross salad. And I'm just like, man, I want a cheeseburger so bad, you know. I want some Chick-fil-A. And those calories don't count because they're Christian, you know. Like, like I, that's where I'm, I'm headed. I'm like, that's what I really want, you know. They, they cook their waffle fries in peanut oil. That has to be healthy, right? And so I'm a little sad. I'm sitting in my office. And typically when I'm in my office and I get sad, I, uh, I often go to David's office for him to cheer me up. He's a very positive person. And this particular day, I walk into David's office ready for him to cheer me up, tell me a funny dad joke or do something hilarious that, that could lift my spirits. And I walk in and sitting on his desk is a fun-sized Snickers. And I immediately, without any hesitation, I reach over, I grab the fun-sized Snickers, I open it, and I eat it. And David responds like this. <gasps> he goes, well, why'd you do that? I said, because I'm hungry. And there's a Snickers right there. He goes, I've been saving that. I go, well, that's not very fun. Like, why are you saving it? You're on Whole30. He goes, I know. He goes, I've literally saved that for over 20 days. And on day 31, I was going to eat that fun size Snicker after Whole30. I go, why would you put, tempt yourself? Why would you leave that on your desk every single day for you to see it? You know what he responded? Because I'm working on the discipline of temptation, which clearly you are not. <laughs> that is obviously clear. And we just started laughing. I mean, we laughed so hard. 
but I just had this realization that, that man, I one, I'm really bad at temptation. I immediately saw that fun-sized snicker and said, that's mine, I'm eating that. And here David is on this other hand, and he's like, you know what, I'm practicing the discipline of temptation. And so every morning and every afternoon that would remind him sitting there that he's on a goal and he's got a purpose and he's trying to eat healthy for 30 days. You see, this temptation, it's a very real thing. And I think we miss something. I think too many pastors and preachers take the topic of temptation and they do the same thing with it. They often just immediately go to sexual sin. They, obviously, they immediately go to lust. And let me tell you something this morning. That's one part of it. And it's huge. And you know that. You know that sexual sin and lust, you know that it is something that is robbing humanity right now. But for the people of God today... For those of us in this room, we have got to recognize that it's just one part. That there are other parts on this journey of temptation that you and I often deal with. Whether it be finances. You know, you get in that rhythm where it's like, man, we're just we're tied on money. And, and, and next thing, I mean, we've got to figure out a way to get money. And so maybe you, you try to skirt some corners or you try to cut some things out. Or, or maybe you, you do something that you normally wouldn't do with finances. Maybe you look at the budget and you go, you know what? Tie's the first thing that has to go. I just really need that money this month. God, surely you'll give me a pass on this one. Right? There's all kinds of these things that we go through life where it's these little temptations that kind of move us. And nudge us. And sometimes, when they get big enough, they rob us of our calling. They rob us of the purpose and the mission that God has for us. We have all sorts of desires. Desires to eat. Desires for pleasure. Desires to be liked. Desires to win. Desires to have influence. Desires to prosper. Desires for success, desires to be rich, desires to be known, desires to be loved, desires to be the best. You see, none of these desires are necessarily bad. They're not, they're not bad things for us to have. In fact, they're oftentimes can be good things. But the way in which you and I choose to go about these desires, that's where it becomes unhealthy. The way you and I choose in order to engage in some of these desires, sometimes it becomes excess. It becomes too much. And oftentimes these desires we put before the things that are most important, including our relationship with God. As I've been preparing for this message, and I've been having conversations with different people and asking them, hey, tell me a story about temptation in your life. You know what's interesting? The same conversation. doesn't matter who I talk to. The same conversation, a story in which they lost a battle with temptation. You know what's always the common denominator? It started this big. Maybe of all the giants we're dealing with this morning, temptation is the smallest one. Every story, it started this big. They would oftentimes end their story like this. I never, I never would have imagined that would have ended up doing this to my life. 
it started this big. And it grew. And it grew to be one of the biggest giants I have ever faced in my life. When I was nine years old, uh, I had played a couple seasons of flag football uh, in early elementary school. And in nine years old, my parents had finally decided that I could play tackle football. I was excited about it. I was pumped about it. I was like, this is going to start my career, right? I'm headed to the NFL moments after this season. Like, I'm going to get drafted out of middle school, you know? Like, that was kind of where my head was at. And I remember uh, the, the day in which uh, my dad was going to be the coach, and our team was called the Twisters. And by the way, we went 0 for 11 that year. We later nicknamed ourselves the Terrible Twisters, but we were awful. But that day I was excited and we're headed to orientation and registration for the football season. And I'll never forget this conversation because I'm having it with my dad on the way to orientation. And I said, hey, dad, guess what? He goes, what? I said, I'm going to be the running back. He goes, uh, well, we'll see. We'll see, won't we? I'm like, dad, I'm going to score so many touchdowns. Like, I'm going to be just like the guys on TV. Like, I am going to be the running back. I promise. He's like, yeah, you know, you can do anything if you set your mind to it. And I remember we get to orientation. I'm standing in line, and my team's with me, and we're holding our helmets. And as I get close to the line, I said, hey, Dad, what, like, what's going on? Why does every kid, like, standing on that scale up there? And my dad's like, oh, well, you know, it's important that, you know, the kids weigh in, you know, and we get everyone's weight. I'm like, okay, strange, but yeah, sure, Dad. It was my turn, and the guy sitting at the table, he says, Holcomb, you're up. So I'm like, okay, so I hand him my helmet. I step up on the scale. He's like, all right. I step down at nine years old. Okay, I'm not really thinking a whole lot about weight. I don't even know what number was up there. And this, the guy goes, he says this to me, I'll never forget Congratulations, son. You're a striper. And for you guys that have no idea what that means, he hands me a yellow sticker, a yellow bar sticker. And I go, okay, I play for the Twisters. He goes, no, son, you're a striper. I go, Dad, why do I have this sticker and why am I a striper? My dad goes, well, you know, this part of the story makes Hannah sad, so just bear, yourself, bear with me here. He goes, you know, some kids, you know, they're just a little too big to uh, carry the football. And uh, so we got to put this giant yellow bar sticker on your beautiful white helmet to let everyone know that you can't touch the football. I was devastated. I was devastated. My mom, after first service, she just reminded me that that night I came home and I grabbed her and I cried. You know, here's the thing about that story. Is that for me? You ready for some vulnerability real quick? For me? That moment? It started a life of identity for me I never knew I had. It was so small. I mean, I'm nine years old. It was so small. But for me, from that point forward, you know what? Chris is a lineman. Chris is a lineman. He's a big kid. He's a big guy. 
It's a little dangerous for him to run the football. My dad was awesome, by the way, and he, he gave me the next best job. I was the center, which means I got to touch the ball every single play. And all of a sudden, this really small thing in my life began to grow into this identity. And then as I got older, and as I got older, and as I got older, all of a sudden, these things like temptation when it comes to overeating became a very, very real thing for me. And all of a sudden, it got wrapped up in my identity, and all of a sudden, I started to take it on as myself. And and all of a sudden, it was okay for me to overeat in high school. Right? Because Chris is a lineman. We need him to be big. We need him to be strong. Well, guess what? No colleges started calling. I, I went to SNU studying to be a pastor. But those habits that I had started years and years and years ago continued on in my life. And falling into temptation in the area of food became something that I did regularly. You see, it starts really small. And sometimes we often say, ooh, I gave in to temptation in the moment. And we think to ourselves, why can't I, why can't I, I say no to this? Why, why can't I stop doing this? Why do I keep falling day after day, week after week, year after year? to this temptation in my life? Why is this thing getting so big? And the reality is, is we have to look back long ago and go, it started there. It started there. You see, I'm convinced of the fact that temptation is so sneaky. It moves and operates in our life in such a way we oftentimes don't even recognize it when it happens. But the truth is, is that sometimes... When God created us right here for our center, the enemy starts to nudge us and push us and move us. And we go from there to here. And we recognize that something's just a little bit off, but as we continue on with life, guess what? This becomes the new normal. This becomes the new area of life. This becomes the new way in which we live. And then a little bit later, the enemy kind of nudges a little more, pushes a little more, and we find ourselves here. And this becomes the new normal. And all along, in our subconscious, we kind of know that something's not right, but we just kind of keep nudging, and He keeps nudging us. And all of a sudden, we begin to justify and rationalize that this is the way in which we're supposed to live. But the whole time, the whole time, we're moving off center. And we don't even know it. Let me read you a passage of Scripture We've been looking at David's life in this giant series, and unfortunately we can't look at David's life without looking at this passage because it is such a marker in his life. And many of you in here have heard it a hundred times, but some of you, this may be new to you. But we cannot look at David's life without going through this text that I'm about to read. So here we go. Second Samuel chapter 11, it says this, In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Here's what I need you to hear from this passage. David is not where he is supposed to be. 
We often read this passage and I think we skip over verse 1 because we often know the, that what's going to happen here in just a later few verses, we often skip over this. It says, in the springtime, when kings go off to war, guess who's the king? It's David. David is supposed to be with his men. What they did back in this day is they would break war for winter because it wasn't worth losing troops over. Everyone would call a timeout during war and they would take a break and they would get through winter and the moment it was spring, it was game on again. David already had his time of rest. He's already been in the palace through winter and now it's springtime where he's supposed to go back and be with his men and he's not. David is not where he was supposed to be. And it says this, he sent Joab you go with the men and fight. But David remained in Jerusalem. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. Verse 2. So one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. It's interesting that the writer of this chose to say one evening. A detail that maybe he didn't have to put in there. But he chose to. Why? Because he wants us to know something. He wants us to know that not only was David not where he was supposed to be, he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. See, it was, it was tradition that many people would take a, a nap every day from like 1 to 3, kind of in the heat of the day. That was a very thing, that was a custom thing that they would do. They would, they would come in from work or whatever, take a nap, and then they'd go back at it in the evening time. So more than likely, David in this passage had, had taken a nap just like he normally would, but the writer wants us to know that he slept till nighttime. That he chose to not go back to his responsibilities, to not do the things that he had to do that day, but rather, he slept till evening. So not only is he not where he's supposed to be, he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. You know, the interesting thing about temptation is it often starts with what we see. That tends to be the path that it takes. It, it often starts with what we see. Do you know, I did a little research on the eyes. And it's interesting to me that did you know that your eyes are so active that it is the most active muscle in your entire body and it's by a long shot. Your eyes are so active. They are retaining so much information on a daily, second, minute basis that it, is, it, that it requires over 50% of your brain to process the information that your eyes bring in. And so often what we see, the things that we take in, the things that get in through our eyes and into our brain, often trickle down to our soul. The things that we see begin to shape us. The things that we take in begin to become the identity in which we have in our life. The eyes are an important part in this conversation of temptation. David saw a woman bathing and she was beautiful. 
So David, verse number three. So David sent someone to find out about her. The man came back and said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David, he takes this information and then he says, then he sends a messenger to go get her. She came to him. He slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. You know, I read this story. I've literally read it hundreds and hundreds of times. And you know what? Every time I read it, I have kind of the same reaction to it. It's almost as if I, this, this time I'm going to read it and the outcome's going to be different. It's almost as if I, I read it and maybe this is the time that David makes the right choice. Maybe this is the moment in which David doesn't do what I think David's going to do. And I have finally gotten to this place and I look at this story and I go, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that David fell into temptation. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And all of a sudden, the David who, who Samuel anointed as king, who he saw as a little boy and said, you are going to be king. You are appointed by God. That same David. The one who as a teenager steps up to slay a giant. The one who is so focused on God while everybody else is focused on a giant and he slays Goliath. The same David who as king would over and over and over again would consult the priest and God before making any kind of important decision in his life. The same David who has the nickname man after God's own heart. It's this David that even temptation brings down. And I read it and I say, I'm not surprised. I'm tired of being surprised by this. Because over and over and over again in history and in our own lives, we see temptation bring down the greatest of people. We see it start so small and grow to something so big that it becomes a massive, giant in our life. Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Send me the husband of Bathsheba. And so Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was. How are the soldiers? Let's make a little small talk right here. Then David said to Uriah, You ready? Go home. Go wash your feet. Go down to your house. So Uriah left the palace, and David sends a gift after him. But Uriah doesn't go home. Uriah, Uriah sleeps on the palace steps. Uriah doesn't go home. He sleeps on the porch of the palace. So David hears about this. He was told Uriah did not go home, so he asked Uriah, haven't you just come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home last night? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, 
and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. If we want to look at a life of temptation and somebody who's doing it well, I think we look at Uriah. I think we read these scriptures and we go, wait a second. We recognize David's downfall with temptation. We see the way in which David is handling this situation and it's not good. But on the other hand, we've got Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, who in the face of temptation chooses to do it right. You see, it's interesting. Sin and temptation, it always takes on the same cycle. It always seems to have the same pattern in life. It seems to have the same rhythm in which it takes in our life, and we don't often recognize it. But it starts with this. I saw. I saw with my eyes. I saw something I liked. I saw something that caught my attention. I saw something that I think I wanted. And then from I saw, it moves into this other thing. I desired and desire is this weird thing that we have because they're sometimes good and desire gave us the gift. Uh, God gave us the gift of desire. But all of a sudden when I desire, when we take those desires and we put them before God, we're in a real situation. I mean, we're in real trouble. I saw. I desired. So I took. And at the I took, it's this moment in which gives birth to sin. I saw, I desired, so I took. See, I love this moment speaking about Uriah's life. He's been gone for months, he's now home. He could have all the food. The king is offering him everything. The king is saying, go home. Be with your wife. Here's some gifts. Here's some drinks. Here's delicious food. Sleep in your own bed. Wash up. And Uriah goes, I can't do that. I'm sleeping on the porch. Why? Because he had a mission. He had a calling, and he was focused. You see, his focus was on his men. His focus was on his service. His mission was fighting this war and this battle for Israel. His calling was to serve as king. Uriah was so focused that when faced with temptation, his calling was so clear, his mission was so evident, that when faced with temptation, it took a back seat because he had a job to do. Hannah and I have been on this uh, journey the past few weeks. Really, we've been on it all year, up and down and fails, and, but we've been really focused this last half of this year. And many of you know, you follow me on Instagram and different things, and, and you've seen kind of some of the journeys that we're on, but, but we are truly pursuing this healthy lifestyle. 
I'll tell you, I'll be vulnerable. The other, the other day, last time I preached, I mean, I was watching the sermon back and giving myself feedback and critique. And I'll be honest, some of the things I said, I couldn't believe I said them. And I recognized it and I watched it and there were moments where I was like, man, that had to be God. Because I didn't prepare that. I didn't, that wasn't in my notes. I didn't know that was going to come out. And I, I almost surprised myself watching it back. But you know what distracted me? My battle with temptation that I've lost over the last 20 years. And I had this moment where I realized that I got big goals. I got big dreams. I want God to use me in ways that I could never have imagined. And if there is any area of my life, including weight, if that distracts or keeps anybody from hearing a message in which God wants to say through me, then I have got to get it right. You see, my mission and my calling and my focus is becoming so clear to me that I want nothing to keep me from it. I want no giants in my life to keep me from that because those are small compared to what God wants to do through me. I want no temptation to keep me from that because that is small compared to what God wants to do through me. And so all of a sudden, I have got goals that I want to achieve. And my mission has never been more clear. I want to reach people for the gospel. I want people to find this story of God and find healing and hope in ways that they could never have imagined. I want my life to be right between me and God. I want to be a great husband. I want to be the best husband that I can possibly be. I want to be a great dad. I mean, I want to be the best dad in the entire world. I want to be a great friend. I want to be a great pastor. I want to be a great son. And there is absolutely no room to become a victim of temptation in my story, in my journey with God. And there isn't room for you either. temptation continues to be a giant that you wrestle with and you find and you begin to fall victim to you're straying you're straying off center the enemy is nudging you and you're moving the enemy is pushing you and you're just going with it and you're in danger of potentially never living out the calling and purpose and mission that God has put before you. And if some of you this morning are sitting here and you're going, Chris, that sounds good, but I have not known my calling and mission for years. Temptation has been dealing with me. I've been falling victim to temptation for far more than 20 years. And here's the thing. David, recognizing his deepest sin, recognizing that temptation got the best of him, recognizing that he fell victim to this, he writes the most powerful and beautiful psalms ever written. Immediately following 
the act with Bathsheba, he writes Psalms 51. And Psalms 51 is this moment in this narrative in which we get to see a glimpse into David's life with God. And even though he messes up, even though he loses it to temptation, even though he really, really messes up, he writes the Psalms in which he restores himself in the eyes of God. And so today, again, three or one hundred, you need to restore yourself with God. You do it today. You don't wait because you have a calling and you have a purpose, but you got this giant in your life that needs to be taken down. The last cycle. I saw, I desired, I took. There's one more, and it's I hid. And I hid's the most difficult one to deal with. Because I hid is this moment that goes back to our humanity in the Garden of Eden. This moment, and we recognize that we have done something wrong. We are shameful before God. There is, there is difficult to process, and so we, we tend to draw back and we tend to hide. And the problem is with the cycle of sin, and when you get to I hide, is you actually have a death. And unfortunately, I'm not talking about a physical death, but some of you who have gone through temptation that has really wrecked your life, you would almost say, I would almost rather have died than gone through what's going to come next. But it's not a physical death. It's a spiritual death in which we separate ourselves from God. We move away from our calling. We say, God, I know you probably had this plan for me, but you don't any longer. I'm too shameful. And so I'm going to hide. And then you become nothing more than a hollow version of what God had intended you to do. The beautiful thing about God is He just moves us back to the center. No matter how far left we are, how far right we are, where He's pushed us, He just moves us back to the center. To the center. If this is you, I want you to hear this Psalms. I want it to speak life into you today. This was David's cry to his father, to his Lord. The one in which he pursued all the days of his life. He found himself in a situation, but this becomes his cry of his heart. This is our cry for this morning. It says this, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. This is your prayer. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in my verdict, God. And justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So Lord, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. 
Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are my God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. And you don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. Here we go. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit. It's all we have to bring. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Focus on your relationship with God and your giants will fall. Focus on your relationship with God. Watch your marriage be healed. Focus on your relationship with God and watch temptation take a back seat. Focus on your relationship with God and God will move you and He will call you and He will fill you with His Spirit. You have the full power of God living within you. It's there, and it lives within you. And every day that we put our giants over God, it robs us of that. You fight from victory, not defeat. So this morning, as Chad sings this song, I want this song to speak to you. This is a moment for you to pray. This is a moment for you to be present with God. It's not about anybody else. It's not even about your spouse. It's about you. And you hear these words, and you sing these words, and you listen to them, and you pray, and you focus on God. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at BethanyNaz.org.